Hello, everybody. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am the host for Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I will be interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having conversations around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive in. If you'd like to join me in future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at seachangehappens.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with all of the shows on iTunes, Spotify, and of course, all the usual places. So please plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode four, with the title of How Good Humour Can Be Used to Nurture Inclusive Cultures. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to be joined by Jeremy Nicholas. And I first met Jeremy at a speaking association conference in 2018, and we also shared a weekend in Edinburgh at a professional speaker weekend there. Jeremy is a keynote speaker on communication in business, specializing in adding humor to presentations. So I asked Jeremy to describe his superpower, and he said, finding the funny in everything, getting serious laughs in serious talks. Hello, Jeremy. Welcome to the show. So how can good humor be used to nurture inclusive cultures? Hi, Joe. Um, yeah, well, I think humour is important because people bond when you when you have a, a laugh together. People that laugh together tend to stay together. And so I think any kind of um, humour that you can put into a situation will make them, it will make people like you, but that's not what you, why you're doing it. You'll then like people that are funny. So I, I just think it's just that little bit. It's like putting a bit of sugar in your tea. It's just a little bit nicer. Although, actually, that's a bad example because I, I don't put sugar in my tea. But... <laughs> <laughs> so it's a very human thing. Is it, is, yeah. so you think it's a very human thing to, is to have humour. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you you see apes messing around as well, and dogs have a bit of a laugh, but none of them use humour with words because they can't talk. Well, they they can, but we don't know what they're saying. So I I mean, I mean I've never laughed laughed at a dog. I've never enjoyed their <laughs> material very much. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a I think it's a very human thing. As it's. it's um, it's it's in our sort of needs that we have. It's you know, but people always rank it very low down. They always go for security and warmth and friendship and things. But I think humour is something that's everything's just better. It's like seeing the world in colour. If it's yeah. if it's funny, it's in colour. Otherwise, it's just in black and white. Do you find that uh, some people try to mask their personality by, by by downplaying the lighter side of them? And when we talk about some people never growing up uh, or being a where some people portray this very stiff, very rigid outer frame. Uh, do you think some people find it very difficult to let go? Yeah, I think they do. Um, I think sometimes you think people look like they've still got the coat hanger in their jacket. <laughs> and, and so their shoulders like that. I think just calm and relax. And, that, and that's why... Um, it's it's so much better if people can have face to face meetings, and you know you 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 can have a business meeting with someone once a month for five years and never really get much beyond a certain stage. But you can have a retreat with them at a weekend where you could then have a drink in the evening and chat and relax, and people start telling stories. And that's what we've done for years. And we we've sat round campfires, told stories, and you know perhaps shared an alcoholic beverage, and that just relaxes people. And, mm. and and you then feel like, oh, yeah, they're the person I had that laugh with. Like you said, we had the weekend in Edinburgh with the professional speaking people. It was a yeah. it was a burn supper event and we had a tour of the castle and it was it was fantastic weekend. And then, 
you know, when I then see people from that weekend at other professional speaking events, I feel like I know them better than others that I've known longer that I've only ever seen at an event, you know, perhaps an evening event once a month for a few years. Mm. Yeah, walking around a windy Glasgow up to the castle and standing there in that big square and taking photographs and helping other people take mm. photographs of them, right? You say it was... You say windy Glasgow, but it was Edinburgh. Sorry, it was Edinburgh. 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 That's Edinburgh where Edinburgh was. Castle is. And, the, and if you can't, the way I remember it, the way I remember where Edinburgh Castle is, it's in the title. So that's how just a little new yeah. mark you might want to use. So it's near Glasgow, but not in Glasgow. That, yeah, never, <laughs> never, ever get Edinburgh and Glasgow confused. Oh, so uh, yes. people from Glasgow will tell you the trouble with Edinburgh is it's full of English people. Yes, and uh, yeah. Edinburgh people are too polite to say what they think of Glasgow. But as a comedian, it's uh, particularly an English comedian, it's much harder to go down well in Glasgow than it is in Edinburgh. It's just, you know, there are certain places. So I, I know there are places in the country where yeah. I go down very well and there's places I don't go down very well. Liverpool, no. Can't, they, I'm not funny in Liverpool. I'm funny in Manchester, which is not very far away, so I don't know why. Um but I'm not funny in Yorkshire. I'm very funny up about as far up the M1 to about Retford. Okay. North yeah. Nottinghamshire. Well, Retford's on the A1, but, um, and then, uh, I lose my superpowers, Rotherham, Sheffield, all the way up Leeds. And I'm not funny, not funny. And then I start getting funny again about Middlesbrough. And then I'm funny all the way up to Scotland and Edinburgh. I'm very funny, but I go across to Glasgow, not funny at all. Okay, so that is a sort of like localization of what's funny and humour and accent. Mm. Is it some accents they find funny, some accents they find um, uh, elitist, maybe? Or I don't know. I think a lot of it would just be things that people laugh at, and I think people in Liverpool laugh at different things to people in Manchester laugh at. Um, I people, you know, I'm, I go down very well in London because I live in London and I grew up mm. in London, and. Um, other places it, i think it's just if you're seen as a bit of an outsider so somewhere like cornwall that has a very much its own identity and are you know you come down here with your fancy ways right. then you might you might struggle and that's in their minds I, I went to university in the north and i never got much beyond are oh, you not from around here are you yeah and if, you know eventually with friends, they they forget that you're from a different part. But for an audience, when there's a lot of them on mass, you can mm. seem like a bit of an outsider. So the the way to then break that down is always make yourself the butt of the joke. Yes. So okay. um, and then people will will warm to you. But you, I mean, you, I couldn't go to Glasgow and start having a go at. Oh, in Glasgow, you do this. Oh, I can't believe you do. You know that that's not going to go down well. But if I start saying, cool, it, it's lovely here what you do, isn't it? In London, we do this. And then they'll, oh, yeah, they'll laugh at that London. Right, so okay, so just, you have to create the other group. Is that, exactly, that's often, yeah. often when we talk about inclusive cultures, we end up using comedy or banter to mm. create an other, another group. And, often, and quite often we can find yourself being on the in-group and using humour against the other, whereas, whereas what you're suggesting there is, is be the other Mm. And use your otherness to create you to bring you into the into the in group, if you like. Whereas banter is often about creating an other and then taking the Mickey out of it. Yes. So my rule on that is that I don't ever want anyone in the room to feel threatened, and mm. I don't want I don't like any sort of cruel humour. So you'll see a lot of stand up comedians that are very cruel in their humour, and, and they're laughing at a very specific group. I don't like to do that, and. 
if I, the only specific group I laugh at would be a group that I might belong to. So it might be Londoners mm. or it might be men with bald heads or it might be glasses wearers and all things that I, it's clear that I'm making a joke about myself. Um, and I think that that's really important not, not to have any cruelty. And the, the thing is you can do the same stuff in different places and some people will regard it as funny and others will regard it as, oh, we shouldn't say that. So, for example, Jimmy Carr um, did a story about uh, he was working with injured um, soldiers from Afghanistan and uh, the Gulf conflict. And he was working with them. A lot of them had lost limbs. And there was a sort of a a charity day, bonding day. And he went in and and did a free gig for them. But he'd spent the whole day working with them and chatting with them and having pictures taken. And they thought it was great. So when he came on and did a show, especially for them, and he said, say what you like about the war in Afghanistan, we're going to have a great team for the Paralympics. They all laughed because they knew that you know, he had judged that that would be all right because they, that was the sort of thing that they'd all been saying to him and they'd had banter amongst themselves. Mm. So he knew that was fine. Encouraged by that, he then put it in his set the next night in Manchester to a theatre audience and people booed him. And the difference was the soldiers in the audience and their families all knew that he had done so much to help that, and that that's the sort of thing they would say. And he knew he wasn't, he wasn't having a go at them. He was laugh, laughing with them. Whereas in Manchester, it looked like he was picking on soldiers that lost limbs. And so that was yeah. very, very different. And he's spoken about that and he, he, he doesn't do that now. Um, so it's just, it's just the difference between uh, looking like having a go at people and looking like you're laughing with people. It's, it's are you laughing with or at? Yeah, so I, from, from when I talk about you know, D&I world, it's, it's understanding the, your intent and then the impact. I didn't intend to call defence, but in this scenario, in this context offence was taken uh, because the context was different. And yeah. Humour, you've got, to, you've got to understand the context of the humour, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, the trouble with analysing humour too much is that inevitably you kill. It's like it's like dissecting a frog. You find out how the frog works, but the frog dies. And that's yes. the thing with comedy. You look at it too much, it's like, yes, OK, we got a bit serious about that. But, yeah, you're, you are right. And it, it, I suppose you, as a comedian, you, you probably learn that you can't be funny to all people every time, everywhere. And, and you just have to roll with that and just pick yourself up and carry on. Yes. So I did last year at the Edinburgh Fringe, I did 27 shows on 27 days in a row. And I was happy with 23 of them. And there mm. were four that I wasn't happy with. But of those four gigs, people came up to me at the end and said, I like that. That's the best show I've seen since I've been at the Fringe. And I'd say, when did you arrive? And they said, about an hour ago. It's just a, just a joke I've thrown in. That didn't happen. It just occurred to me now. Um, but the, the point being, the four that I wasn't happy with, it's often because there were people sitting there folding their arms or yes. there was just a person with a grumpy face in the front row. And that, that is the thing with a fringe venue. Um, the, the, the way a comedy uh, gig is set up, the light's very bright on the stage. The audience is in darkness. So you can perhaps only see the front two rows. Mm. And if there's one person in the front two rows who has their arm folded, it looks like maybe their partner dragged them along and it's not really their sort of thing. And they'd much rather have gone somewhere else. You, you've just got to zone them out of your head. Because if you look at them, you think this is going really badly. And most comedians have a bit of an insecurity that, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not funny anymore. Yeah. And you've just got to rely on the fact that every night you've done this material when you've been practising, 
when you did your preview shows and when you did it at the event, it got a laugh. So it probably is still funny. So never mind that bloke with the grumpy face in the front row, just ignore them. And, and yeah. from those four gigs, I got other referrals from, from people because they said, no, that was, that was, that was really good. But um, if I had times when I thought, oh, I might need to just um, run off the stage and run out into the road screaming because it's going so badly. Yeah. But it never was. It never was. But no. most most people who do humorous stuff have a little bit of an insecurity about, oh my goodness, is this funny anymore? Especially if you've done stuff before and so you've got used to it. The the things that make me laugh the most are unexpected things. Mm. So if I've if you know, if I've done a show four times in a row, I think, well, I'm fed up with this now. You know, and the, the tendency then is to start chucking in new stuff that's just occurring to you, like I did about that person who I've just got here an hour ago. That's yeah. which is mildly amusing, but I don't think I'll ever say that ever again in my life. Um the danger is you, you get some people who start then riffing and doing stuff that they're thinking of sort of stream of consciousness type stuff. And that's when the danger is because then you haven't filtered it. The stuff that yes. you've written, you've, you've checked, is there anything offensive in it? Mm. That's it's, it's when people start ad-libbing that, you know, their true personality might come out and they might say something racist or sexist or homophobic if they have that in them. Now, I don't, I don't have that in me, so I'm unlikely to do that, but I might go too far, uh, just on a particular point. I might be not, not offensive, but I might just go a little bit too far with something. You think, well, you're probably best not to do that again. Yeah. Just in, in, well, what you may have done is, is inadvertently just use language that wasn't good language. You weren't, wouldn't necessarily being offensive, but the language and the context, the way you use that language, someone might have detected some sort of element of racism. Um, I think you see it in politicians all the time. Instead of referring to a person of colour, they talked about a coloured person. That's a, that's because there's their skill about how to how to describe somebody, and their, the use of adjectives isn't isn't quite right. So as you say, when they go off off piste and and just and and, and wing it, mm-hmm. they can sometimes their inner brain kicks in, and then they lose the context or the sentence that they haven't thought about. And yeah, it's, it, it is. I guess in comedy, it's even it's even uh, more risky to go off off script to because then how do you get yourself back in again? And that, that must be quite tricky. But I know what you mean about. Yeah, so um, I, I really like the the. Um, Carry on. Sorry, I was just going to say I, I really like I really like the um, Claire in the Community sitcom on Radio Four. I don't know if you know no, that. No, I've not heard that one. Claire no. is a social worker played by. She's a social worker played by Sally Phillips. It's based on a, a long-running comic strip in the Guardian, and she's a social worker. So she's tries all the time to use the correct language and be very PC but occasionally she'll she'll start censoring herself when there's no need to so um they they have a meeting and they're talking all about uh, they're, they're, in one of the episodes they're talking about humor and she, she says yes we can't have any black humor uh, 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 dark humor you know she just immediately corrects herself on that as though it, you know anyone would have any sort of problem with that but um yeah it's people do tie themselves in circles yeah, I know what you're saying. Also, when uh, you're on stage, you're, you're delivering either as a professional speaker or as a comedian. I've done a few stand-up gigs, and I know exactly what you mean. If, you, if you've got the wrong audience or the audience that's not quite in the right eye line, you've got one person, as you say, is is looking, well, playing with their phone, arms crossed, not interested. That can almost your brain just locks onto that negativity sometimes, isn't it? And I often find as when I talk on stage, if I, I just need one person to smile at me in the first couple of sentences and I've got them and that's the person I can work with, I can then blank everybody else out. But yeah, I, I did a, 
I do I do a little stand up routine which I've done a few times now, and I delivered it the other day, and the audience were it's like a square audience, so I had nobody in front of me. Everyone was in the periphery, and I, there was no one I could focus on. I couldn't hear the laughter, and that's a really tricky thing to sort of pick up on, isn't it? And as you said, it's uh, it, you start to doubt yourself how funny you are. You think that should have got a laugh, and then it got a titter. It didn't get a, it didn't get a belly laugh, and yeah, it's it's a really tricky thing. So we're, we're now in this. Without wanting to date this podcast too much, but we're now in this sort of like world pandemic situation. You know, we, we hear these words unprecedented, and I think we hear it about fifteen times a day. Uh, and I think by now it's kind of the norm. Is that I, I think we can move past unprecedented now. So how how can we as humans keep our our our, our smiles up? You know, it's the British have this spirit of of soldiering on, stiff upper lip. But how can we now? come together as a country and laugh about stuff. Yes. So people have different approaches. One thing that a lot of people send to me are lots of little internet memes, little funny images or videos. And to be honest, if I'm working and they start flying in, I just switch my notifications off because I think, no, hang on, I'm, I'm busy and do that. But then I'll settle, settle down in the evening and then I'll see them coming in. Someone sent me one the other day and it was a picture of the Last Supper as though it was a Zoom call with all of, well, they've taken all the people. So you've got Jesus in the middle with nobody else on the table. And then all of the disciples have been put into little Zoom windows. And that, you know, that was a funny image. And I felt like, yeah, because that's how I spend my life now talking to people on zoom um or just i just think just pick up the phone to people that always make you laugh that you always uh, tell good stories with and just have a a really good rant about all the things that are annoying you because mm. there's a, a, it's a great way to release some tension and a lot of comedy just a release of tension you build up that pressure build it up build it up and then the laughter is the the pressure being released mm. and so we call it truth and pain where you just moan about stuff and if the other people uh, that's something that annoys them then you'll have a shared bond and you can laugh at it and you can make your problems smaller by laughing at it you know no matter how big something seems if you laugh at it what a great weapon that is it just mm. brings it down to size so so that's called truth and pain and if you think about a comedian uh, or a professional speaker when they when they come on they don't ever start by saying i tell you what i really like and they don't you know and they, if they told you all the stuff they liked and that they're happy with that's not funny but if they go oh it drives me mad when and so billy connolly would be the best at this you know when the person in front of you plays with a check or you pick the wrong queue at the post office yeah you know, also it's going to the days when we were allowed outside of course um but uh it's it's that common shared thing. So a great I I, I have a, a program called Talking Funny for Speakers where I, I, I give them exercises to do uh, on how to make their talks funnier. And week one, the exercise is write down all the things that annoy you. And then in the group, we all share all the things that annoy us. And then you think, right, what is funny about that? And then what else is funny about that? And what would be even more? And I'll go to like four stages and what else and what else and what else until you get that little bit of gold that like, yep, yeah, that's the line. That's That's what really annoys me. Yeah, no, I like that because the routine I do, I think you've heard it, is is all around the pain in my life and the the sort of ironic examples mm. of how just being me in the world. Uh, and it's people laugh at it because they've never thought of those things in that context before. And it allows them to get an insight on onto the pain and the irony that I face every day. 
Basically, yeah, if I just said I'm really happy walking down the street, that's, there's no there's no humour in that, is there? But uh, yeah, if I you know if I say I'm walking down the what street, is the, wind, the, what is the what gets the biggest what gets the big what gets the biggest laugh in your routine? What is the, what is the line that you think always that's the killer line? Um, I, I talk about the airport scanner, and the punchline to that is unexpected item in the bagging area, and that that always gets the sort of uh, people come up to me afterwards and they're still laughing about that one bit and it, it really sort of because it's a common phrase used in a different context and i don't kind of signpost it enough and then i land it and it, it kind of it, it kind of just makes people go well where did that come from oh well that, yeah i see what you say oh yeah i get it now and it, it's it's a way of being crude without being crude isn't it as well and I think when you have a good line like that, what I always encourage people to do is then say, and what else could you say about that? What other things would go along with unexpected item in the baggage area? Mm. Well, I actually now talk about the fact that, uh, so, so, so women out there, if you want to, uh, if you want to smuggle cocaine, make it look like you're trans. It's much easier to get through customs that way. <laughs> Very good line. Um, yeah, we've got to laugh as well. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so do you find sometimes people uh, kind of mask a health, an underlying mental health problem by by using humour? They're, they're, they're using it as a way of covering uh, in their life. And, and how can we stop or how can we spot that and help people who are, are just masking their, their, their underlying conditions? Yes. Um, I think a lot of people that, that well, prof- a lot of professional comedians have over the years have mental health problems you know uh, there's a very high rate of suicide amongst comedians and alcoholism and drugs but then there's an awful lot that, that don't have any problems with it at all but um i think people that that just think a little bit differently are often very good at, at making making humor mm. um i don't i don't know how you spot it and i don't really know how you help um, because that's not really my end of, end of things. No, I suppose really not. I mean, but there's been some. So Robin Williams, for example, everyone thought he was a life and soul of the party, and uh, he quite mm. clearly had some very underlying mental health conditions. And uh, it, everyone thought he was okay. That's just how he was. But I guess he must have gone home at night, switched off the microphone, switched off the camera, and 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 turned in on himself. Maybe, yeah. Because I, I mean, as a speaker, and I know many speakers, we kind of thrive on the audience appreciation that when we thrive on that, 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 that brain drug that sort of, mm. that we like to be liked. And sometimes when, when you're not in front of the camera, not without an audience, you could, it's a vacuum appears, isn't it? And you, you're then living on your own with yourself again and, and no one to find yeah. you funny. So I think my, my thing is that it's important not to care too much whether they laugh or not, because if you're really craving that laughter, like it's heroin, then you're, you know, on the days when you haven't got a show, you're going to struggle. So mm. I, I just, uh, I think, just think of it. It's, a, it's nice if they smile, if they laugh, it's better. But if they don't do anything, they've still had the story that you're telling. That's that's my big thing. It's always got to be. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't ever think of myself as a comedian. I think of myself as a storyteller uh, with some kind of a learning message. So they're getting the learning. 
they're hearing the story and then instantly if they laugh as well that's a bonus and usually they do but i wouldn't ever want to go out and just do did you hear the one about because that's to me there's no no point i don't crave the laughter enough for that and i and i'm not funny enough either for that i uh because all of my background is a bbc broadcaster a journalist for years so it's it's always been about the content and the the humor for me is only ever the icing on the cake it's not mm. the actual cake itself it's just a little bit of spoonful of sugar to help that medicine go down good point um i've seen you mc some events and i think you're a fantastic mc and i know i know you you, you even coach mcs for events as well so how important mm. it is is it to have a great mc or someone facilitating because some content in some conferences could be quite straight late can't it? so we do need this ice break so how, how do you see your role in that in that situation yeah, so I see the role of the MC to set the tone for the event, to answer any questions that the audience might have. So, first of all, what's the Wi-Fi password? Where are the toilets? When, when's the break? How long is this going on? When can I get out of here? So that people can plan that. Uh, any yeah. other questions like, you know, if they're gluten-free, there's... there's gluten-free sandwiches at the far end in the breakout sessions do i have to pick now or you know so any question so i just think what do the audience need to know um, and then it's about giving a build-up to all of the speakers um and most speakers give me introductions that are far too long and i just say all i need to know is who you are what you're speaking about why we should listen please welcome your name that's all i need four lines mm. uh, but still people send me biographies and i, I don't care about that i don't care how many universities you went to and how many degrees you've got and what your names of your children are. Just who you are, what you're talking about, why you're here, why we should listen, what's your name, off you go. Um, and then it's coordinating the clapping, really. I mean, organisers often haven't got a clue how to do this. The number of times they'll say, well, the chief executive's going to say a few words and then welcome you as the MC. That's something I get all the time. And whenever I have the meeting, I say, okay, that's mad. I need to come on first to hush them up, tell them the rules, tell them about switching their phone to silent, tell them the hashtag, all those things they need to know. And then please welcome the, MC, the uh, chief exec. So he come or he or she comes on to applause. And I said, if, if the chief exec goes on, then he or she will then uh, have to hush them up. Well, that's not a good way to do it. And then welcome me. Why welcome me? I'm just some bloke you've paid. So, oh, right. Yes. Okay. We'll do it that way around. And then with the speakers, you need to make sure that they start well and you've any kind of showing off that they were going to do you do for them so if someone's written a book i don't want them coming on waving their book around i'll go oh they've written this book they must be worth listening to and then i'm giving them a plug and then they come on to applause and and then my other big tip for mcs sorry i'm a bit fanatical about this yeah. um, is that when you get to a break when you get to a break you want to leave the stage to applause the number of times people go well i think they will take a break there see you back in 15 minutes and then everyone shuffles out quietly what you need to say is coming up after the break we've got dave who's going to do this we've got miranda who's going to do a session on this and leslie will be here to share these thoughts but let's hear it for the two speakers we've heard so far joe and marion and then there's clapping you walk off it's not your clapping they're clapping joe and marion but um it means that everyone knows that that's the thing and they're not they're not just shuffling out quietly to get a coffee no great ideas great tips and uh I think when you're in the audience, you can experience the difference. As you say, there's the, the chalk and cheese there. And it's, uh, yeah, great MC adds to the event. There, There's a valuable part of it. And it makes the, the segue between the, between the speakers uh, far more relevant. You get the takeaway summarized. You, you get build up energy in the room. And I know as when I come on stage, I love the energy as I come in. 
And the the one thing people often say is, oh, you don't notice a good MC. If they've done their job, you shouldn't notice them. If they don't notice me, I haven't done my job. I want them to notice me because I want them to think, oh, that was really good. It reflowed well because of the MC. I'll recommend him to somebody else. So yeah. forget that rubbish about you don't notice a good MC. That's rubbish. No, I, I, I agree with that. I've, I, I've emceed a couple of events and I really want to be building them up. I want the audience to start clapping. I even get to practice clapping while we're in the dead space before the thing starts. I want to have a couple of whoops. I get competition going between the sides. Like you do. And then when someone comes on, they're already in that zone where they don't mind clapping and being vocal, which is, is what, it's what, it's what you want as a, as a stage performer, as a speaker. You want that energy because that's what you soak up when you first come on, isn't it? And I love the point about yeah. you introducing my book and not me because it's having someone else talk about you is far as an authority is far more powerful than saying it about yourself, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, all speakers would welcome a good MC because then they're coming on, they've started the fire, and then the, the speaker will just come on and throw paraffin on yeah. the fire and get it get it all going. But if they come on dead, it's really hard to lift it. And especially if if you've had a session and the speaker before you wasn't very good or the subject was very serious, so it, it's brought the mood down a bit, then the job of the MC is to, oh, I can't let the next person start like that. So you, you, it's basically like a barbecue where occasionally as the MC, you've got to put a few bits of paper, a bit of kindling, a bit of opening the va- air valves, a bit of blowing, yeah, to, to get it going so that the next person starts. It's like a spinning top. You've just got to whip it a few times to get the, the top going to, so that the next speaker at least starts with a decent chance of doing a good gig. Hmm. Well, thank you for your time, Jeremy. I really appreciate you uh, taking some time out in your busy pre-Easter schedule. Um, I'm sure you have lots of things planned, like going to the beach side or maybe go for a walk in the forest um but maybe maybe next week <laughs> maybe well maybe august uh but keep safe uh so for all my listeners many thanks to jeremy i'm sure you'll agree there's plenty of humor for thought uh we talked a bit about emceeing as well and a huge thank you to you all for listening in so please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the inclusion bites podcast that's b-i-t-e-s please tell your friends please tell your colleagues I've got a whole load of exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. Please remember, if you'd like to be a guest on this show, please let me know. I would welcome all of your feedback, comments and suggestions to joe.lockwood at stevechangehappen.co.uk. Let me know how we can improve. Let me know what content you would like. So my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.